Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, the Other People podcast is entirely free. It is offered freely. Nearly 600 episodes, all available free of charge. This is a listener-supported show. If you like the podcast and you would like to support it, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, what a struggle, you know? It's incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Other People (laughs) Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I am in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. It is nice to have Sarah McCall on the program today. She has a memoir out right now on Live Right Press. It is called Joy Enough. Joy enough. She was great. She came over not too long ago, and she was ready to talk. She was ready to communicate. We had it out right here in this garage, and I recorded it. And by had it out, I don't mean to say that we were arguing or that it was contentious in any way. It was great. It was delightful. It was friendly. And uh, we just we talked about stuff. We got into it. You're going to hear this in just a moment. She was a great guest. So... Uh, I also want to add that her book is uh, wonderful. It's a grief memoir, if I'm, if I, or a griefy memoir, if I may use the word griefy. Not an easy thing to write about, and she manages to uh, pull it off. Joy Enough, once again, is the title. Sarah McCall, the author, and my guest today on the program. So uh, I'm watching my dog right now. She's supposed to be like, I'm trying to like integrate her into this so that we can be uh, companions so that she can feel like she's included in as many activities as possible. But uh, she makes a noise. She can't resist making noise when I'm trying to record while I have, and my dog is named Twiggy. My daughter named her and it actually suits her perfectly. She's very skinny, but, uh, and she's got a long, she's kind of like a whippet, you know? It sort of looks like that. She's really just a mongrel dog. She's kind of a little bit of everything. But 
the other day, like I'm training Twiggy. I'm trying to make sure that she's a, a well-behaved animal. And so in the mornings lately, or at least some mornings, I will walk her around the neighborhood and go to a coffee shop and I will like put her on a uh, sit stay. I'll say sit, stay, and I will go inside the coffee shop to get my beverage and we, we're kind of practicing. Like she's learning how to uh, handle herself when I'm inside of a uh, a retail establishment. And she's good at it. She's doing well. This is a smart dog. She's responding well to uh, training. But this week, you know, if you can picture it, it's about like 6 o'clock, 6.30 in the morning. It's early. Sun is just coming up. I've got Twiggy outside of this coffee shop. I am inside. I'm standing in line. I'm looking back. I'm checking to make sure she isn't moving. I order my beverage. I pay for my beverage. I'm looking outside. She's she's doing fine. She's kind of a nervous, tempered dog. Like she's a little of a like she's got a little bit of a nervous Nelly in her. So when I go inside, she's always like at attention, like waiting for me. Like is he going to come back out? Is it over? Is he gone? You know, she I, I don't think she quite gets it. But uh I'm standing there waiting for the barista to complete the preparation of my beverage. And I look outside and this guy, you can picture him. Okay. He's just like this guy, he's probably like 50 and he's got like a, a doodle. He's got like a, like a labradoodle or a golden doodle, but he's a guy with a doodle. And, uh, he's walking his doodle on a leash and he sees Twiggy, like, at attention, waiting for me outside, like a perfect angel. And he just, like, walks over, like, lets his dog, like, walk over and just get right up in her face. Meanwhile, he, he doesn't see me. He has no idea that I'm watching this. But he sees this dog, clearly on a sit-stay, waiting for her uh, guardian if I'm going to use the politically correct terminology, I'm not her owner. I'm her guardian. I'm her pal. And, uh, he sees this and just lets his dog come over and just get right up in her face, knocks her off of her stay. I don't blame Twiggy. I blame the doodle. I don't even blame the doodle. I blame the man. So I'm just like, what dude, why it's not your dog. Get a clue. Like, what, what are you doing? Why is this a good idea? Why is this an acceptable behavior? I think like, it, this is the thing. I think psychologically he looked at Twiggy and was like, wow, that dog is really, you know, well-behaved. Someone's trained that dog. You know what I'm going to do? Because my dog isn't well-trained. I'm going to fuck that dog up. I'm going to knock it off its sit-stay. Fuck you! This is a dark human being. It's got problems. Needs to uh, be addressed. I could, I don't know, take some classes in basic etiquette, read some books about life. Like, like I get that people like dogs. I get it. You like dogs, whatever you like when your dog, like, this is another thing that bothers me when people are like, can my dog say hi? No, I don't need your dog to say hi to my dog. Dogs don't need to say hi. Quit projecting your emotional needs onto your animal. They're not going to say hi. We're in the middle of a city. I'm walking. <laughs> you want him to say hi? Like, let him say hi in a, in a yard or something, or a, like on a farm. We are city people. These dogs do not need to say hello. 
your dog is out of control and is pulling you, you're letting the dog pull you and you're trying to justify this, you know, behavior by claiming that your dog needs to say hi. Your dog doesn't need to say hi. You need to train your dog. Sit down. Go away. Fuck you. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again is uh, Sarah McCall. Is that too extreme? Am I, am I like a dog Nazi? Sarah McCall is my guest. Her memoir is called Joy Enough, available now from Live Right Press. Uh, just a lovely book and uh, just a lovely conversation with a very talented writer. Here she is, folks. This is Sarah McCall. Well, I've tried answering this question many different ways. Um, but I guess one of the ways that I think about it is that it's a book about trying to understand your parent outside their role as their parent to you. And for whatever reason, I was always very curious about m my mother. She seemed like a very kind of cool and unknowable person to me. And people also said that we were alike. So that was sort of um, a bit of a mystery. You know, what does it mean to be told that you're like someone that you don't quite understand? So when she died, spoiler, <laughs> um, I think I was trying to still understand, well, who's this person that I feel so bereft at having lost that I'm apparently like that I still kind of never got a satisfying answer completely about who she is. So, you know, I think of my nonfiction as being kind of motivated by I want to discover something. I want to know something. So it started in that in that vein, I think. Well, can I just say you have. I always marvel at this when I'm talking to memoirists who write these really vivid accounts of their childhood or past experiences. You have incredible memory for detail. Like did this stuff, did, did you know that you had it or did it come back up in the writing process? Did you, did, were you surprised by how much you were calling up? Well, I've always kept a diary. So, uh. so some of it is not just pure recall. Some of it is, you know, I know that I wrote that day that a shed smelled like bicycle tires and hay, you know, I don't remember that. Um, but I think I've always had a very visual memory, you know, uh, you sort of remember things in, or I remember things in moments, you know, very visually, like the scarf someone was wearing and what the weather was like. So I think that helped with rounding out scenic details. Um, but yeah, I guess I have always 
thought I had a pretty decent memory. But then, of course, memory is so slippery and other people have ideas of what they remember and it completely conflicts with yours. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess I always say I have a terrible memory, but maybe I overstate it in the opposite direction. It's just, it feels like re like remembering scenes from my childhood. I guess there are some. The sticky ones stick, I suppose. The sticky ones stick. And then, yeah, I had some cheats. I mean, I had my own diary. Um, and then I had, I sort of, you know, had this treasure trove that I found of my mom's. So she had written stuff about, you know, tie-dyeing things and dinner and dates with my dad and stuff like that. So I had access to her memories of things as well. And what was that like? Oh, great. I've always been a ter terrific snoop. <laughs> okay. So yeah, it was like, I guess, you know, it's like, wow, this is who she really was. Yeah. And what's, what's the harm in knowing? Yeah. Well, you know, my mom also had like throughout my entire childhood, this giant hat box in her closet filled with love letters from my dad. And, um, so there was always kind of information that I could go through and I did, you know, even as a child. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, is that unusual? People snoop like kids snooping through. No. Do you think your kids are I snooping through your stuff? I hope not, but I'm sure. I mean, I remember snooping as a kid. You're curious. You're really curious. I think that's why, I mean, I've said this many times, but I think that's a, a, a central motivation for me writing this show or writing the show, doing this show is that I'm anticipating and like, is this grandiose? But I'm anticipating my own death mm. <laughs> and like the unknowability of parent and child. And I want to leave something so my kids know who I was. I think that's totally beautiful because like, otherwise, because otherwise I don't know, even if you're like close and you do a lot together and you have big talks, can you really know somebody? And may maybe even after listening, to, <laughs> listening to all 600 of whatever, <laughs> however many episodes I wind up creating, uh, would they, would even that be able to deliver a clear picture? But there's a frustration there, you know, and there's that desire to like want the people you love uh, most to know you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some people, well, I was talking about this with a friend of mine who's a mother, because she was saying, oh my God, I remember when you came to my parents' house and you met them for the first time and you said, well, how did the two of you meet? She was like, my sisters and I were standing there like grossed out. Like, why would you ask this question of our parents? But um, I always want to know the the stuff outside. Like we only know each other right now in this relationship, in this room, but wouldn't it be cool to be able to access everyone else's relationship with you or your relationship with the outside world in some way? So, yeah, you can never really know someone, but you can snoop and yeah, you can you ask can, a lot of rude go questions. Through their, go through their love letters. <laughs> yeah, I ask a lot of questions. Too. I do, too. That's, yeah. what, I mean, that's what I do. Yeah, great job. Uh, it is. And, and I think, too, like it's nice to whoever it is, whether it's a parent or a family member or a friend or an acquaintance, even like, I like to have uh, real communication mm -hmm. like that, that uh, goes beyond the superficial. I like, like, I know that's like a kind of obvious thing to say, but it's, I don't think it's that common in the world that we live in. And maybe that's just a function of, you know, day-to-day -day reality. You can't like get deep with the barista, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as much as you would like to, but it's like, uh, 
I don't know. I guess I'm just saying I have a, a hard time with small talk. I do too. And, um, I've been sort of realizing as this book has come out and I get to talk about, you know, people's loss and their great sadnesses or people will tell me about their affairs or whatever, their marital problems. I've just been thinking, oh my God, if writing this book means that I never have to have small talk with a stranger again, I'm a genius. Yeah. Like, just set <laughs> this yourself is, up. This was the greatest gift I could ever give myself because I think you're right. It's uncommon to have that um, like desire for really getting in there, but and people don't know how to do it necessarily. But I think often they're grateful when you do. Depending on how you do it. Yeah. Like you can be like the person on the airplane <laughs> and like, you know, row 17 CD, who's just like getting too, yeah. you know, touchy feely or whatever. But I think that if you're open, like you're saying, like you have been in this book and you kind of take that leap, it's a relief to other people. Yeah. It's, it's a relief to be around an honest person who's vulnerable and, and like, uh, open but also fun and like not self-pitying. Right. It's like, you know, like it's, but it's hard. It's hard, especially if you're getting into difficult terrain, um, not just in conversation, but also on the page. Yeah. And maybe especially on the page to not veer into like solipsism or self-pity or negativity and, you know. Like and it's, it's hard to know where that line is, oh right? God, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I know where that line is. Well, you, clearly you do. Your book, your book pulls it off. Well, that's a tremendous relief, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, but you always, you always wonder, <clears throat> I, I guess what I've realized in this is that I have a lot of comfort with emotional life that I think maybe a lot of people don't. Um, but what is honesty to me might be sentimentality to someone else. So I'm always like hugely relieved if, if no one thinks the book is sentimental, which it's about sentiment. It's about feeling. And it treats feeling, I think, as if feeling is important and interesting. But to some people that might be, whoa, too much, you know? Well, I mean, you know, these things are like death and loss and the dissolution of relationships. It's tough stuff. Yeah. Not everybody has a, like a high pain tolerance. That's true. And sometimes people, it's too close to the nerve or whatever. People have stuff that they've been through or are currently going through. And I think sometimes you just, it's not the right timing. Yeah. But, do you, well, wait, can I, I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Like, do you subscribe to any kind of idea about like how much time has to elapse between an event and the writing about the event? No. I mean, I think some time is probably a good idea just because with time comes hopefully some perspective. Mm -hmm. I think if it's, you know, but then again, sometimes writing like right when you're in it can yield, uh, I think a piece of work that has all this vitality and energy in it. And like, you know, it's kind of like roiling with grief and you can yeah. feel it, you know, sometimes that can work too. It just depends on the writer, you know, and the, and the particular situation for me. Uh, I, I think I'm the former and not the latter. I have mm -hmm. a hard time seeing things clearly, even with time. Um, and I think, um, maybe I would benefit from being more immediate. Cause I think like one of the things I struggle with is adjusting to new developments in life that feel like they're like bouncing me off 
the course that I was on. It mm-hmm. changes my relationship to the work. It's like something else happens in life, some, you know, especially something difficult. And suddenly it's like, oh, well, this isn't the book anymore. Mm-hmm. You ever have that feeling as you were working on this? Well, that's kind of like the like a narrative question about like when when does it end or like what's the ending kind of um yeah i I don't know i mean no how long did it take you to write the book three years okay and some of it is written really from being really in the feelings of of loss but you know Well, I guess the one way I think about it is that you have your intuitive writing brain where I I do kind of think that your intuitive brain is smarter than what you think you're trying to do. So so you just let that part write, which I did. But then there's your editing brain, which is much more, I don't know, maybe it has perspective or um, is thinking about themes, you know, things like that, that where you start to look at what you did and think, well, what am I doing here? Um, but I think you need both. And I'm thinking about what you said about, um, seeing something clearly, like, what does it even mean to see an experience clearly? You know, do you see it? Like, is it more clear because it's not roiling for you anymore? But then that seems to like, say that distance and like a remove and an emotional kind of, um, I don't know, like remove basically renders something clearer as if like emotion can't be instructive or clear on its own. That's true. I mean, I think sometimes anger can be blinding, Yes, but the other emotions, maybe not so much, or maybe in fact, quite the opposite. Yeah. And now I'm thinking too, like in this revisionist way that uh, maybe by allowing for all this time, you might be permitting yourself or opening yourself up to the intrusion of like your own uh, narrative layers onto the experience that wind up clouding it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think I do. You start telling yourself stories about what happened that might not actually be what happened. Right. Because like if I, I wouldn't have written this book if I'd waited another two years to start writing this book. Because it wouldn't have been so, because some of it is just about that, what the experience of grief feels like. And I wouldn't have, um, I don't, I think the clarity that would have come from time was that I wasn't as interested in that experience of grief, but I was very interested in it at the time. Yeah. How long ago did your mother die? It's going to be five years in May. Okay. So it was five years and then. The three years that you wrote it were pretty much immediately following. Yeah, you like started, started right, away. right away. Okay, because she cause she died and I went into graduate school and that was a wonderful opportunity to just you know pour it out, pour it out. Yeah. As my brother said, you know, are you in graduate school or are you in a two year grief program? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, either way. <laughs> well, I mean, but that to me is like a great sadness actually about our culture and. I guess I I realized that it was a luxury to fully enter and process and write and render my grief. But I wish that weren't a luxury. You know, I wish there were the time and the space and the cultural traditions or whatever that would let people do that. Yeah. 
I mean, we hide, like we hide our dying in America. We insulate ourselves from any vision of death as, as much as we can. Uh, as a culture, we're really not comfortable with it. I think other cultures around the world, mm -hmm. depending on where you are, it's much more a part of the uh, fabric of reality. But in America, we don't get much prep. No. <laughs> Nor do we get any kind of um, instruction manual, or I guess maybe in certain pockets of the country or certain cultural traditions, they might have a sort of protocol for the grieving process. But most of us are just kind of winging it. Yeah, totally. And uh, I'm reading this book, um, actually, like just as a, a matter of uh, weird synchronicity, but it's called Being with Dying. Mm -hmm. And it's by uh, Joan Halifax. And she did all this like palliative care work. She's a Buddhist nun, but she just like has spent many, many years of her life basically as a hospice worker, but like just being with dying. She's telling all these stories and it's intense. Yeah. And it, you were sort of in the role in your family as, you know, you took on a lot of caregiving and that's, uh, that's a big job. It's gotta be frightening. Um, super intense. I would imagine at times, like, can you describe, I don't know, maybe the, like some of what you went through and some of what you learned from having to be at close range with this, with somebody so dear to you? Yeah. I, th I thought the experience, I think my mother and I both thought the experience of, um, being very present with each other in that moment was very clarifying and very, I mean, it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but, um, it felt like an experience of life to be in an experience of death. Like everything seemed so alive. You know, I took over her garden, you know, how do I grow radishes? How, how do I make sure the tomatoes like don't flop over or whatever? Um, it was just very clarifying to be with someone who was so in love with life, kind of r reckoning with the fact that it was ending and wanting to talk about what that meant and also wanting to really be with the fact that she was still alive. Um, and I found it like kind of exhilarating, you know, I, I had never felt more alive. That, no, that makes perfect sense to me. I, I joke sometimes, but there's um, truth in the joke that some of my best moments in life have come at funerals yeah. <laughs> just because uh, you, f I feel uh, a clarity and a realness with people, not just coming from me, but coming from them too. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's like a relief. Yeah. Um, but there's also, I think just the basic scientific truth that life and death are inextricable. Yeah. Like, like, like thousands or millions of our cells are dying right now as we speak, like we're always dying, uh, which is something that I don't think we necessarily re remember. <laughs> Uh, it's not like you're, you're living, 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 and then suddenly there's this moment of death. Like there's kind of this dance going on all throughout a human life cycle or any life cycle. Yeah. And you know, like death and birth, like the the plants die and compost and other plants. You know what I'm saying? I do, and I think that that's why, um, you know, having written a quote griefy book, I do have a sense of um, I don't want to seem Pollyanna-ish. 
or overly simplistic about like, you know, a, a slapped on smiley face to the experience of death. But at the same time, um, they are so linked, the, the feeling of aliveness and the feeling of decay that I sort of wish I, I don't want people to just experience or think about books about death or grief as being depressing. That's kind of a frustration to me or something I worry or hope that, you know, comes through. I mean, it has, my book has a very bright yellow cover. And I think for a reason in some way, it's like, and a giant smiley face. On. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if I'm, uh, I just, I do think they go together. And I think that, um, it, at its best, it can feel like an invitation. Did right? it surprise you that this was the case? Yes, very you, much so. I think in our minds, we have so much fear about losing the people we love. And I think in some, in some way, it's the stories we tell ourselves and all that anxiety and those anxious thoughts and those imaginings of, oh my God, that might be in some ways, um, I don't want to say more difficult than actually losing somebody, but you know what I'm saying? Like we hype these things up in our mind and then you get inside the moment itself or the experience itself and they're not necessarily in sync. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think probably what's uncomfortable is the avoidance of the experience. I think that feels like you're denying something that's really happening. So what felt really good, you know, a lot of people didn't want to talk to my mom about the fact that she was dying. And I think she didn't want to talk about it with a lot of people because it's kind of a bummer they get, and people get weird, you know, yeah. and like, it scares people and it scares people. That's what it is. People, you know, um, when you're around the dying or the infirm people who are unwell, I think it's a reminder of, of your own mortality. Yeah. And but. I guess I have some reverence for people who are in like palliative care professions or people who run towards people who are sick and infirm and dying versus moving away. Mm -hmm. I think they're rare. Uh, I think most of us are too overwhelmed and I really wish that, that more of us weren't. <laughs> and I very much want for myself to be one of those people. It's like one of these things I tell myself, I think that's why I'm reading this book. Like, I just don't want to be somebody who shrinks from human suffering. And I think that in the same breath, you have to say that it's not always, uh, pretty and it's not always graceful. Like some of us, you know, some of us handle being sick and dying better than others. Some of us handle the sufferings and the difficulties of life better than others, but all too often, the kind of suffering that people in palliative care professions or in any kind of caring profession are dealing with are people who are pissed off, mm -hmm. scared, angry, self-pitying, um, unstable. Like it's hard, mm -hmm. you know? And I think most people in the presence of that, even if they're willing to go there for a little while, eventually they're just like, I'm out. Yeah. And you need to stay in <laughs> somehow. <laughs> I mean, I think what I'm, what I'm realizing listening to you talk about it is that it's not like I had some very unique orientation. I think, I think what it was, was 
a relationship of two people whose orientations complemented one another. Because I think if my mother had been very angry or avoidant or in denial, and she was angry. She was angry about the fact that like she would order her bulbs, you know, to plant and then wouldn't have the energy to plant them. That made her angry. Naturally so. Yeah. But, um, but she was forthcoming about what that anger was about or the existence of that anger, as opposed to displacing it on something else. Um, so I think her willingness to kind of be emotionally present allowed me to be emotionally present. But yeah, I mean, I think if people are dying and they have or are sick or are going through, you know, just the illnesses of watching our bodies just atrophy and like, sucks, right? sucks so bad. Um, yeah, it, you, I wouldn't have had that experience. Did it take some of your fear away to have gone through this, like to face it? You know, you had to face losing your mother, you had watched that process, watched that like decay. I think at one point in the book, you talk about how she aged like 20 years and six months. Yeah. That's hard to watch, Yeah, you know, and hard to go through. But like, did you come away with any greater degree of, I don't know, peace or serenity or acceptance around it? Or is that just kind of Pollyanna-ish? Well, I think on the one hand, it's made me very corny. Like, you know, I was... Um, in yoga the other day and the teacher kept talking about being in our embodied forms and I was like really feeling my body in the room and in the postures and then I was like god I love being embodied I love my embodied life and then um, I realized I would not always be embodied and it would end and then I started weeping and then I couldn't stop weeping for the rest of the class um, which felt great Cause it was like, you know, it's kind of a gift to remember that and to, to arrive in the place of being grateful for being in your body. And then also to realize that it won't be that way forever. And, and it could end at any moment. Yeah. Like any moment and any day, you know, you just don't know. There are no guarantees and, um, easy to, easy to forget that or avoid thinking about it but also like you know with the with the buddhists like we can't live in a constant state of like oh my god this moment oh my god this moment like in this constant state of rapture like that would be so annoying a and b you know mostly it would just be very annoying like who wants to get a drink with that person (laughs) um but even just some of it, even just more of that feeling, I kind of am grateful for and I welcome. It's like an equilibrium. Yeah. You know, you don't want to be with the person who like can't break eye contact. Who's just like a little <laughs> bug eyed in the waiting room at yoga. Yeah, yeah. Like, we get it. You're present, you know. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, what I found is I think the people who have like the most comforting vibe to me. Um, it's less that there's like, I don't know. It's like, there's, I think there's a little bit more sadness and vulnerability mixed with like a wistfulness and good humor. You know what I'm saying? It's like a blend. Yeah. And I think the thing that we're talking about is like where it's like cranked up to 11 in one direction and the other direction is not so great either where the person's just like 
morose and right. no, <laughs> fatalistic. That... that doesn't work either. Yeah. So it's like, it's like some like nice balance of like the polarities or, you know, this blend of, uh, experiences in life that we have. And, um, I don't know. It's nice to be around somebody who's embodying that. Yeah. A friend of mine calls it the fleetings, you know, when you, when you're going along and you're having like a nice, I'm alive feeling. And then you have the dawning realization of it being able to end at any moment. And it's bitter. It's, it's both at once. It's so beautiful and it's totally depressing, but I love that he calls it the fleeting because it's like the best it, that is that equilibrium moment that I think it's like when it dawns on you, it's like, it's good. You know, well, it is bittersweet, I, but it's good. Well, I agree. And it's like, it makes me think of like, you know, uh, all this talk of enlightenment and, uh, is it like a, is it like a sustained thing or is it something that's like a constant, you know, it's an ongoing process rather than some place you get to. And is, is anybody out there really sustaining this? I guess maybe there are some rare humans who can do it, but I sure haven't met one. No, hell no. And like, do you, um, have you ever listened to Tara Brock? Sure. She, yeah. Love, love Tara. But she, she talks about remembering and forgetting and remembering and forgetting. And for me, like, that's totally what life is. And sometimes like to a very hu like humiliating degree, like, oh my God, I've been realizing quote unquote realizing the same thing over and over again since i was seven like how many times do i have to learn this fucking lesson <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> but i guess forever is the answer yeah. like, literally forever well and you tell me like just the humiliation i can feel to just keep failing you know like am i making progress in life am i am i getting a handle on this is there any handle to get like what how do you do it? You know? And it's just that feeling of exasperation I can sometimes feel, especially when I'm having a not so great day or I fuck something up or mm -hmm. just do something stupid or I get angry. It's just like, I don't know. It's hard. Are you a perfectionist though? Uh, I mean, maybe a little bit. I mean, I've been working on the same book for more than a decade. That's probably some perfectionism, but yeah. like, I don't know. I am kind of like, I'm a creature of habit. I think if you looked at my like day to day, you'd be like, holy shit. <laughs> it doesn't feel like I'm that crazy. If, I mean, I don't know. I, maybe, Wait, why would I be like, holy shit? Like, it's just like, wow. Like this guy's, I get up at four 30. Wow. And, no, the wow. Yeah. But I, it's the only time I have. I try to like, it's not cause I'm like, I don't feel like super, like I had, I've had conversations lately around ambition. And I'm just like feeling this sort of like blah feeling about the, um, the work world and like what to do and mm -hmm. right, right livelihood and like how to balance it all and how to do something that you don't feel like is toxic and, um, how to like take care of practical concerns without getting swept up into like this mad chase after money. And mm -hmm. it's just like, it's hard to navigate all that stuff. And a friend of mine was like, I forget what I said, but I said something along the lines of, uh, wanting to do something, make a positive difference. You know, speaking in that vein, <laughs> God, this is sounding terrible, but then <laughs> he was like, oh, so you are ambitious. And I was like, oh yeah, like I am, but I, but 
I, you have to be ambitious for the right things, I think. Mm-hmm. I, or that's what I want. I don't want to be ambitious for the wrong things. Right. And it's trying to like suss those two things out. And like, can you be ambitious for the quote unquote right things while at the same time um, being effective in the economic system that we live in? Mm-hmm. They seem to be at cross purposes so often in my life and in my reading and it's like how do i how do i thread this needle (laughs) yeah i mean capitalism bad like it's hard yeah it it compromises us and i don't know like we didn't uh winston churchill i I could be totally botching this but i want to say like winston churchill or someone like him said something like it's like the least worst system that Mm. man has devised Mm -hmm. um I have to believe we can do better. I know. I want to imagine, like, can we imagine different modes of living where uh, things are a bit more equitable and people are uh, happier and people have, like, just as an example, to go back to what you were saying about uh, the grieving process. Like, oh, when you lose someone significant that we would have, I don't know, some sort of ritual or time allowed or, I don't know. Well, in some ways, I think, even though the gig economy has so many problems, um, including the name gig. Economy. Yeah, I think you're right there. Um, the branding is bad. Uh, but you know, like a friend of mine who's a poet and makes a living as a poet and a teacher, she said, um, yeah, I'm trying to organize my life so that I no longer work when I have my period. And I was like, well, Oh, like, great. You know, that's a great idea. Um, or, if there are ways in which you can structure your life so that your work life works for you in some basic ways. But the other thing that I was thinking about ambition is how do you navigate getting a little bit of success for your ambition, being somehow rewarded for your ambition and then not get kind of steered off into a nefarious zone of like, this is taking me in the wrong direction. This is taking me away from why I'm actually ambitious or something. It's easy. To, it's easy to to slide off the, the path, yeah. you know, until all of a sudden you're like, wait, what am I doing? Yeah. Uh, so you have to have like a, a watchful eye. And like, I think about, uh, I was thinking about this as I was reading this Joan Halifax book, but uh, it's like the Buddha, he abandoned his wife and child to go on this quest. So I'm sort of thinking about that in like a modern context. Um, like I would never do that. Right. But like, that's kind of hardcore. I guess he was a prince and like they had a palace to live in and <laughs> he didn't, they weren't like just destitute, like begging for food. Do you know what I'm saying? But it's like, what would he do or someone like him if he were in my shoes? Oh God. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know either. Well, don't they talk about like, um, like the big boat in the little boat or, or something like that, where it's like, there's the enlightenment that, or the, there's the enlightenment quest where you, you go off and you seclude yourself and you cast off your worldly concerns, including your wife and children. Um, but then there's the, I think it's the little boat. Maybe I'm not sure. I'm probably completely messing this up, but where you stay, you know, in, the boredom and uh, mundane realities of daily life, and you're still working on the same questions of enlightenment and appreciation and meaning. And 
Mostly, though, it's just hard to cultivate a life around meaning when there's so many, like, crude, distracting, like, garbagey things competing for your attention. Well, and also the models of success that we are constantly being shown are not typically rooted in a search for deep, deeper meaning. Yeah. Like even in the writing realm, yeah, you know what I'm saying? It's like a quest for fame and status and the right reviews and the right, like you, I, I see, especially in, you know, the social media context, which is where people self present and curate. Mm-hmm. And, but then, you know, I don't know. It, it's a, it's kind of like a necessary evil, but I, I find myself like sometimes getting, being like, you know, it's hard not to fall into like, Oh God, like I got to do this. Yeah. And then it's like, do I want that? Is it the right thing to want? Is this really where it's at? And then I'll read some like wisdom book or hear some like (laughs) wise person talking in a documentary film and they'll be like, and then, you know, one day I looked around and I was in my mansion in Malibu and I realized I was still unhappy. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, you know what I'm saying? It's like, don't we, what's the project here? Are we trying to be superficially happy or are we trying to actually be happy? It's, it's weird because like, even with, um, I, I have, as I'm sure we all do a strange relationship with social media, but then, you know, here I am a debut author and I feel like part of my job is to do the best job I can on social media, promoting my book. And on one hand that feels gross. And on the other hand, um, I'm sort of like, well, you know, that's just what's required. And that's what people are doing. And I'll try to do it in the most like annoying, <laughs> the most annoying way possible. Just own, <laughs> just own it. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, it's just annoying. Um, but it's not, I mean, it is, and it is, and I guess it depends how you do it. But I think at this point, it's just the water we're swimming in. I think most people accept that. But I think that's like what I am suddenly also kind of aware of where it's like, do we even have to be swimming in this water? Like, what about the writers who just aren't on social media, you know, and they're, they're just off whatever they're, they're actually writing. Right. <laughs> they're oh not God. hashtagging am writing. They well, are. I know. But it's like a lot of, I should say just like I always, cause I always throw up this flag. It's like a lot of those people have a readership that pays them a living. Yeah. They don't need to be. It's a luxury to not need to be on social media, like rattling your cup for readers. Yeah. Um, but then there are people like I was thinking, uh, just maybe just yesterday, it was like Edward P. Jones came up in my head just as an example. Like I think he, you know, he's published well, he won the Pulitzer prize. He's not fucking around on social media. Mm. He wasn't even before. I don't think he ever would, even if his book hadn't, you know, there are writers I think who just would never even think to do it. Right. And maybe some of that is generational. Maybe some of it is temperamental. But I can't help but like sort of wish for myself that I were like one of those people who just was completely off. I'm only on Twitter, which I feel like smug about. I'm only on one. (laughs) The rest of you fools spend, spend even more time curating your lives on all these different platforms. But I think eventually like the goal is to remove myself from it. Really? You want to get, you want to get off? I think so. I think after, I mean, I don't know. I go back and forth. I, it's just a tool. It depends how you use it. Mm -hmm. I I get that whole argument, but, uh, at the very least, like a long break, just to see how I feel in the absence of it. Like not like a month, but like a couple of years. Wow. You know, like really take some time and like think about what the differences are. And, um, 
I don't know. Well, just like quality of attention kind of changes, right? Like the more, the more you're not in that quick hit world. I mean, I don't know. I think about the writing that I do when I'm a writing at a writing residency mm-hmm. and I'm always trying to recreate what feels like that brain space in my normal life where I just need a lot of room in my brain to be able to do the work that I want to do. And normal life, you know, your day is carved up into components. At some point you're going to be grocery shopping, then you're looking at your phone. So I don't I don't know I what, look at my phone while I grocery shop. Yeah, shopping. me too. The list is on there. Um so I don't I don't know and so I'm in a constant state of frustration about how do I make regular life feel more like optimum creative life. But that doesn't seem like very generous to myself because it's like, well, optimum creative life is that because that's what it's designed for. And regular life is something else. It is. But it's, I mean, to do this work in the context of regular life, as most all of us have to, uh, you have to create the conditions, like however imperfectly to do the work. Like you have to have a room of your own or whatever, or like a coffee shop of your own or a library cubicle or whatever it is. Do I have to wake up at four thirty? Do you, do you have kids? No. When you have kids, you might. <laughs> I just like the thing is, it's not some like you know austerity that I'm imposing on myself because I'm some crazed like type A person. I don't think. I think it's more like just coming to grips with the fact that if I don't do it, then if I don't get up, then doing like the, the me time and mm-hmm. like the self care that I want to do would otherwise happen when my wife and kids are awake. And then it just, it sort of makes it feel more selfish. Yeah. You know, it's like, Oh, we're all gonna watch a movie. And I'm like, well, dad's going to go, you know, uh, into the garage for an hour and a half and, Mm -hmm. you know, or go to a, a spinning class or whatever it is, you know? And I just, I like it, but I like having that time. Plus in the context of a, a big city, just having the quiet, I like being up and seeing the sunrise. Mm. I love it. Yeah. It's a good time. It's just that it works for me. Um, am I exhausted sometimes? Yeah. Like it can wear on you. It depends on what you're doing. But if you go to bed early, it's okay. I'm just so impressed. And I'm always like jealous a little bit of the people who can do this because I just feel, I mean, surely all writers, we must be more disciplined than we think we are even when, you know, Things are not like I'm not waking up at 430 because I am getting the work done. But morning people get an extra sort of badge of honor. You know what I mean? Like you have a little bit more time because you do wind up staying up a little later. Like once you're up, it's not like I go to bed at eight o'clock at night. Right. (laughs) I go to bed at like between 10 and 11. I don't get as much sleep, but like I, I don't know. It's working for me right now, but it's interesting that I don't get up at four 30 and immediately write. Mm. I get up at four 30 and I meditate for like a half an hour to an hour. And I go for, I go exercise, which, uh, I like to do just to like get outside, clear my head. It does something to me like neurochemically because mm-hmm. I'm not on pills. I don't go to therapy. Like that's it for me, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like how I like sort of set myself, but it takes me longer to get to the page. I feel like maybe if I were really like 
a disciplined artist, I would just be getting up and like having coffee and like making the writing the first thing. I don't know. Also, why are we always just like feeling like we're doing it wrong? You know, like, I don't know. My, my mom, I think one of her gifts was kind of just like making people feel like they were doing a good enough job. And especially around motherhood, like I watched her have a lot of conversations with mothers who are always feeling like they're messing up or not doing enough. And any time they take for themselves is bad for the kids. And my mom would just be like, you know what? They're loved. You made dinner or maybe you didn't make dinner, but they ate something like it's fine. Go take a bubble bath. You're doing a great job. And that's what I wish we had more of in our culture and in my friendships and in my relationships. It's just everyone kind of telling each other, like, you know, we don't have to self-flagellate endlessly, actually. Like, you're doing a good job. Like, you've got hundreds of episodes of a podcast. You're doing the work. You're a good dad. Like, you're a good partner. Like, all this stuff. Like, I guess it sounds corny, but like, if the outcome is going to be the same and we're either just going to feel bad about ourselves along the way or feel kind of okay, some of the time at least, like, why not? Can't we just feel better about ourselves? Just lay out, like lighten up. A lighten bit. up. It's not a bad, it's not bad advice. And I think that, uh, you know, it's like trying to find again, the balance between that mode and maybe being too permissive or like mm-hmm. we're, we're all patting, you know, patting each other on the back yeah. while the, the kids are starving, <laughs> you know, like genuinely neglected. Um, but I think in this culture, you know, like Los Angeles immediately, America, mm-hmm. but then just like people in general, you know, we, we do put an incredible amount of pressure on ourselves. And I think maybe, you know, like what we're being shown and by the culture the models of success that like we were talking about earlier, it makes you feel like you have all this stuff to live up to. And, uh, I don't know how much of it's real. Yeah. And like, so what if you don't live up to this idea? Like, so what? Yeah. I don't know. I say this as if I have internalized all of this, but I haven't. It's just that it's my work. I think it's part of my work is, um, well, it's a nice legacy that your mother gave you Yeah, is to be a person who can make people feel that because people, you know, they could use some of that. Yeah. I, yeah. And it's not like, it's like probably the people in your life, they're trying really hard. I can, you try really hard, you know? So it's not like, it's not like I am being overly permissive by saying like, ah, it's cool. You're fine. You know? I know, I know how, like, just looking at you right now, like, you care, you know, you care a lot. If, if the people listening could only see my facial expression right now, the amount of caring is pouring out of me. Um, so your book, you know, you're dealing with loss, but there's like, they're, they're twin narratives. It's, it's the loss of your mother and it's the loss of a marriage. Mm-hmm. So these things were happening concurrently. Yeah. At the same time. And, um, I think, you know, what I was saying earlier about the sense of aliveness in the face of death, it also kind of reflected back on my marriage where I thought, oh, well, this relationship that I have with my mother, this is intimacy and this is fun and this is connection. Um, and I guess I don't really have those feelings so much anymore with 
my husband. Yeah, it's like relationships, uh, intimate relationships with a partner, long term. There's all these ebbs and flows, and it's just the nature of things. Yeah, you know, it's like it begin. There's the beginning, which is beautiful. You're falling in love. It's exciting. You're getting to know one another, and then, you know, I guess it's different for everybody. Like, didn't George Burns and Gracie Allen just like have like, wasn't it just perfect the whole time? <laughs> They're just joking and smoking or something. But I, uh, I don't know, I guess like, so I, I, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it. Like at some point you realize like this just isn't working. The feeling is mutual and it's time to, to split and move on. That happens in life with human beings. Do you ever think to yourself, like, maybe we should have stayed and like, just let it be sort of boring and bad for a while. And maybe it would have come back around. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, when's yeah, the point I do. to jump? I do. Um, I think probably this is extra hard for people who are really seeking and love that intensity of living is when things are kind of in their lulls to just ride it out. And I was very aware of that in the time, um, at the time. Or I thought, you know, maybe this is just a bad stretch and we'll get to the other side and it'll be better. Um, but, I, th you know, I guess I'm, I'm grateful to my ex-husband, given that he was the one who was sort of like, I'm, I'm going to call it, you know, this is this is over. And because I was still kind of, um, oh, I don't know, you know, like we loved each other and maybe we can love each other like that again. But the fact that, um, I mean, talk about the two thing, the two narratives reflecting on each other. The fact that I was in such grief about the loss of my mother and I really never experienced a grief about the end of the marriage. I mean, I did and, but it had been dead for a long time. So the grief process was very different. It was more sad to have shared such a long period of my life with someone who then was not a part of my life anymore. That was very sad. Um, but I didn't feel like, I didn't feel that like rapture of mourning or like that intense um, sense of loss over the marriage that I had over my mother. Well, it's not as, I mean, it's not as deep of a connection. Yeah. Not as much time. Yeah. You know, it's just different. But do you find that like it's hard to, um, I have trouble with the like down moments, like remembering that like, okay, it's not always going to be like a parade or like, you know, some intense thing. Sometimes you're just getting up and going through the day. I mean, this is like, I'm not one to give advice, but like whenever... Like the best advice I've ever been given about relationships is like, just don't talk when you're angry mm. uh, or upset. And I don't always follow it, but it's like, just wait. Yeah. <laughs> like go for a walk. Like that's the nature. Like you're going to be annoyed. It's, it's, a, you know, and it comes back around. I, I guess the foundation has to be there. There has to be, um, a real intimacy and depth of connection and solidity, you know, to sustain it. But I, I just don't believe, I guess, in this sort of romantic notion of a of a, a really long relationship between two human beings, man, woman, man, man, woman, woman, I don't care mm -hmm. what it is, that doesn't come with um, some turbulence or ups and downs or periods where things are 
better or worse or whatever, you know, I, I just think that's part of it yeah. and accepting that as just reality and, and sort of going back to that, particularly when, you know, it's just, you're in one of those moments or you're having one of those days has an anchoring effect. Mm-hmm. And it also, there's evidence for it. It's like, well, you know what, if you just take a breath or take a walk or just go to bed, <laughs> you wake up, it's a new day mm-hmm. and it bounces back. Um, I think I, or I often have the thought with my wife where I'm like, well, you know, she's seen me at my worst, my absolute worst. And she's still here, you know? Yeah. Like I feel an enormous amount of gratitude. I think people in, um, marriages or relationships, you have to feel that because inevitably over time, you're going to show yourself to somebody you can only hide for so long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, that's, that's just really it, but you, you're, you know, you're always making it up as you go along. And, uh, I was lucky to have good mom. My parents are still married. Her parents were married until her dad died. Um, so I think like that kind of helps just to have a model, but it doesn't guarantee anything. I think that helps a lot. I think so too. Yeah. Um, you know, and like your parents split up. Yeah. So do you think that that was unhelpful or did that contribute to you think the dissolution of your marriage? I think, um, no, I think in some ways like, uh, well, I think in some ways I felt more motivated to stay married because I, you know, before my mom died, the worst thing that ever happened in my life was when my parents got divorced. I mean, these are not horrible things, but I mean, they are, but how old were you? I was 10. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I remember feeling like some, telling my mom on the phone, like, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm, I feel bad that I failed. She's, you know, that's not, a, it's not a failure. It's, it's not a failure. And she was sort of reassuring about that. But, um, yeah, I think my parents also had a very intense relationship. So well, I mean, what, a, a hat box full of love letters. Yeah, right. When, when you said that, I was like, I better start writing. Yeah. My wife yeah. made some letters. Oh my God. Why? Are, yeah. More love letters. I was like, cause it was like, cause we live in this fucking horrible digital age. It's all like, you know, AOL instant messengers. <laughs> They're somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. No, they, they would write messages to each. My dad would get his, um, shirts sent to the cleaners and then extra starched, like extra, extra starched. And then they would have a piece of cardboard in the middle and they would write notes to each other on the piece of cardboard and lean it up against the sink. You know, very sweet. Yeah, very sweet. But um, I feel like that was a condescending awe. But anyway, what's my point? Yeah, love letters. I didn't want to fail at marriage. Yeah, so intensity. So I think they modeled intensity. So what I'm, I think, trying to learn in my adult life is like, oh, actually, like real romance is, or part of romance is day-to-day alignment and... Like, what does a healthy relationship oh look like? God. Like, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like these big questions, but I guess it's worth asking because there are rela- like there are relationships that are really fucking healthy. I'm sure. I don't know too many people who I'm like, wow, like this is a glowing couple mm-hmm. who's been together for 20 years or however long. Though, I guess, you know what? My parents have been together for almost 50 years and like they fucking get along mm-hmm. it's sort of like ward and june cleaver you know and you're just like what the f-? they only dated for three months and got wow married. you know so i mean i don't know i guess you what's the other thing i always hung on to as a piece of advice like try not to talk when you're upset 
And, oh, and then like this, I think this notion of each person in the couple having as their primary orientation, like, what can I give Mm. versus like, what can I get? Yeah. And when there are imbalances, it's where a person is like, I'm not getting what I need versus like, are you okay? Right. But sometimes, you know, like it's just sometimes the person who's like, I'm not getting what I need is like being sort of selfish, Mm -hmm. you know? And so things can get sort of tilted. And that can put a strain on things. Yeah. And I think your question earlier about like, how do you know when it's over or like when to let go or whatever? um, How do you know that the compromises you're making are the right ones? That's something I, oh, like maybe sometimes things don't feel right or your needs aren't being met. But I guess your point is maybe I shouldn't, I, we, whomever shouldn't be thinking about whether or not our needs are being met and just like think about the other person's needs more, but it's got to be mutual. Right. You otherwise know? then it's really, otherwise up. then it's like, well, yeah, then you're doing too much. And it's like this constant, uh, you know, feeding of the beast where the other person's getting all this attention lavished on them, but you're not getting what you need. And it's just, it's an imperfect, yeah, you know, like teeter totter or whatever. I guess you just have to, this is where it's like, you get, you have to really hope that you chose someone who <laughs> like, has the same levels of generosity, but also like healthy selfishness and, you know, all the things, frankly, to me, it's a miracle that two people ever like, like each other at the same time, right? make it work at the same time, like put their bodies in the same place and space at the same time. Like how long have you been married? I have been married. Uh, it will be 12 years this summer. Wow. It's gone so fast. Congratulations. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's been, and we've known each other, you know, we've been together for 14. I can't believe that much time has gone by. It doesn't seem like, you know, like that, that much time, but. But that's good. I mean, that clearly means something feels right and is good. Yeah. 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 No, it's like, but I think too, you know, you, people fall into the trap, uh, or it's, I think it's a natural human inclination to wonder or to think, especially when you're um, younger or you're single and you're out like dating, like there's going to be this perfect person in the world. Mm-hmm. And I mean, certainly I feel like my wife is like perfect for me. You know, <laughs> there is that feeling of like, oh, I found, I found someone. But like, if you're being like purely like mathematical about it, or if she were being purely mathematical about it, there's got to be like lots of human beings right. in the world that like you could couple with. Um. I don't know. I think it's pretty romantic to think there's just one in 7 billion or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so I guess it's just like, I I guess, I guess the point that I'm uh, driving at is that sometimes I think in relationships, it can be tempting to think that there's a more perfect situation out there in the world. And there is that mathematical one. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I, that, that hasn't been my experience. I, I, I don't spend much time thinking about that because I'm, sort of feel like I found my person, but it, uh, I think it's fairly common that people think that. Yeah. Or just like measuring it against some ideal, like measuring just like the messy reality of what it is versus like some idealized version of what should be. And again, I think the culture shows us models like these curated relationship reality shows or, you know, romantic comedies or whatever that give you this presentation of what love and intimacy look like that isn't really close uh, but it's like quite lovely to like watch, you know, like I was yeah. watching Silver Linings Playbook the other night 
was putting my three-year-old son to bed. He's like, let's watch a movie. And I just opened up my Netflix and it was there. Suddenly I'm like watching this movie, like totally getting into it. He's watching it. I'm like, is this okay for him? <laughs> it's like Jennifer Lawrence is like shrieking and like knocking the, you know, uh, Remember the scene where she like knocks the food off the, yeah. I'm like, maybe he, I don't want him learning this, yeah. <laughs> um, but such a good movie. It like made me feel so good. I was like, ah, oh, and that, that's kind of like a pretty, I think, uh, authentic romantic comedy, Yeah, like complicated characters, yeah. not like this sort of like, uh, you know, like starry eyed version of the thing. But, um, I don't know. I think that can kind of mess us up is that we just don't have necessarily, a clear understanding of what it's supposed to look like yeah to be in a in an intimate relationship with somebody yeah and that like there's so much focus on this one romantic relationship i mean i think in some ways what's kind of maybe a little transgressive about my book on some level is that it's a love story but it's not it's not a love story about matrimonial love or sexual love. It's about my mom's love of me and my love of her. And that that is its own kind of, you know, great love story. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and like, I should say, too, like, you did such a, like, your mom's so cool. She's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. And like, but I mean, like, to have uh, rendered her on the page like this. Uh, and you didn't do any of this writing when she was still alive. Like, did she ever get to read any of no. your writing about her? No. Well, regardless, like, I just think it's lovely that you put her on the page like this, uh, and that someone like me can pick up the book and just be like, Oh, like at the end of it, I was like, I, I miss her. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, I yeah. feel like I know her and I like her so much. Um, and you, you made it clear, you know, you painted her beautifully. Thanks. That's always the best compliment, you know, when someone says, I loved your mom, yeah. or she were my mom, yeah. or something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I also feel that my romantic relationships always seem to need a lot of ancillary relationships. Like, I, I, I am kind of social, you know, I like having the friend that I talk about writing with and the friend that likes daiquiris as much as i do and <laughs> the daiquiri friend is always the daiquiri friend's important yeah. you know so anyway just like that it takes a lot of relationships and and in this case you know yeah man now now i'm feeling like yeah i miss her well i mean you know it's uh it, you stick around long enough you're gonna miss some people my God, this is, you, you don't go to therapy, but my therapist said to me the other day, Sarah, all relationships are impermanent. And I said, I am so mad at you right now for saying that. <laughs> yeah. He was like, dude, I'm right there with you. It's so easy to forget. Yeah. It's so easy to forget. And then you all, you sort of like spend some time reflecting on it. And I like, you'll have this like catch. I'll have this catch in my breath where it's like, <gasps> Like, oh shit. It's panicky. It's panicky, you know, especially yeah. around my kids. And it's just like, you just, you just don't know. And yet I think that the, you know, the thing to, the thing to do is to cherish and to, you know, really try to wring as much as you can out of like every day. Yeah. Um, that's the project. It's, it's not simple to do. It's so easy to get distracted. And, um, 
like what weren't you saying it either it's like earlier the tara brock thing it's like remembering and forgetting yeah remembering and forgetting i fall into forgetting so easily mm-hmm. i mean just i call it sleepwalking mm-hmm. you know i go uh for all these hikes you know my pre-dawn ritual or whatever and i always like marvel and am troubled when i have one of these mornings where like i'm like halfway down after going up to the top when I suddenly realized like I'm on a hike <laughs> yeah, and I've spent like the first like hour and 10 or whatever it is, you know, however long I'm hiking, like just, I don't know, in some sort of trance, like reliving something or freaking out about something or litigating some mm-hmm. past, you know, like all the things that we do in our brains and you just miss the whole thing or most of it. But I guess the catching is good. <laughs> you know, at least I'm aware that I've, you know, that I was sleepwalking at some point you wake up a little bit. I think that itself is the practice right you know catching yourself because you can't yeah you can't live i don't i don't know anyone who's like living in a constant state of this precious moment um well but it's also not we're not living in an environment living as an example mm -hmm. in los angeles that's conducive to it yeah you know there's a reason why all these monks and nuns of the world live in these like remote monasteries you know, up in the Himalayas or wherever. And it's like, oh, well, it's much easier when it's fucking dead quiet. <laughs> There's no phones, you know, uh, it's like the writing retreat. Yeah. Like suddenly it's like, oh my God, I just wrote like 25,000 words in 10 days. Yeah. And they're good words, right? you know, <laughs> and it's because you had a moment to quiet yourself. Um, but it's just hard to, I mean, unless you're living in some kind of uh, contemplative existence or, like, you know, my, um, patron saint, uh, I always joke like, it's like Montaigne. That's all I want, mm. but it'll be this garage instead of a tower, <laughs> a lot of sweatpants, but he was like this rich French nobleman. He had a fucking, you know, inheritance and all this land and like people cooking for him and shit. It's like, well, of course, right. I think he had people cooking for him, but it was like clearly like a blessed life. You know, he didn't have the normal everyday concerns that we all have. So he didn't have to, right. um, Maybe one day, you know, <laughs> I'll have that life. I, I like to imagine that I would get so much done, but it's, uh, it's hard when you're in a city or in just everyday human existence to not get swept up, you know, either by your computer or by, you know, traffic or whatever it is that we, you know, the grocery store. And maybe what we need to do is like reframe it, you know, so that, and, and I guess this is what I was trying to say earlier, like. I don't want to live constantly wishing that I could make my life more like a writing retreat because I will never succeed at that goal. So that seems like a bad one to take up. Um, but maybe there's a way to like, and I don't know what this would look like, but reframe the, the daily life stuff so that it's punctured with like ways to catch ourselves, you know? Well, they say, and that's the thing about Zen practice. It's like, you know, it's not just when you're sitting on the cushion right. or you're on retreat. It's like when you're at the grocery store, Yeah. when you're walking the dog, when you're washing the dishes, it's like the normal everyday stuff. You're supposed to imbue that and make that the stuff of uh, practice. And I like that because it makes it accessible and it's like a reminder. It's like, oh yeah, there doesn't have to be this perfect set of circumstances right. in order for you know me to be uh, able to do this. But it's definitely, I think, the harder it's the harder version of it. It's much easier when you have like a quiet room. <laughs> yeah. Well, even in writing, like I never, 
I would like to get back into the habit of, oh, if I have an idea right now, I'm just going to stop and jot it down on my phone or something. But I'm very out of the habit of that. You know, it's more like I will be in my studio. The birds will be chirping. I'll have my cup of coffee. If I don't have birds, I'm not fucking writing. No way, man. <laughs> That's a non-starter. <laughs> they got to be nice like doves, too. I want my <laughs> peaceful bird song accompanying um, was this book over the course of three years? I imagine, I mean, all books are hard to write, but writing about something that's like so close to the bone emotionally and just like difficult loss, was it like, like passing a kidney stone mm. or was it like cathartic release of emotion and memory or some combination? I think that, um, part, part of it in the writing was, pleasurable in some sense, because like, I was really not ready to not be in relationship with my mother anymore. And so it kept her very alive to me to be writing about her. But on the other hand, I knew she wasn't alive and I would be like weeping at my desk all afternoon. Um, so yeah, I think it was painful and it was um i've never had a kidney stone but it was like you know really ringing out i'm just gonna knock up <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you i should have done that <laughs> myself um but yeah it was like ringing out an experience um but like i would take that any day over sleepwalking you know what i mean yeah. so go into it like the way through is yeah through. yeah and that, and that, I guess, is in the end, like, why I could take some, like, I liked the grieving process and why I'm glad that I just saturated myself in it for two, three years. And because I, I would rather feel something than nothing. And even the feeling, the deep feeling of a bad feeling is kind of is better than no feeling and or the repression of a feeling or the repression of a feeling isn't going to make it go away. And I think also like to, to the, what we were saying earlier about death and life going together, you know, a bad feeling, it's kind of just like another form of endurance training for good feelings, right? Like it's all just stretching you out and making more room for more feelings about things and more, um, experiences and, and emotional experience. So I guess I was into it, but you let yourself have it. It's, yeah. It's healthy. I, I did. I mean, it's okay to grieve the loss of a parent. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, and, and to, and to do it on your own clock. Yeah. You know, it's not like, I mean, I know, I guess in some cultures, it's like you have the, the period of mourning where you wear the certain clothes or do cert, perform certain rituals or something like that. That's kind of cool. I think mm -hmm. having like, like you were saying at the top of the conversation, you know, wishing that we had maybe something like that, some version of that in yeah. American culture. Um, and maybe, maybe it, it's, you know, it's here and there, but it's certainly not like broadly embraced like a black armband that just like signifies hey like i don't want to talk about you like you know sleep training your kid or whatever I, I don't have that in me right now because i am grieving yeah this know? is my black don't fuck with me armband. <laughs> yeah. none of your bullshit none of your bullshit yeah you know and it's like i have a friend who just lost her husband like tragically they have three kids 
And I just been thinking about them and, you know, like they're just on my brain. Cause like, holy yeah. shit, what a horrible thing to happen. And I haven't seen her since the funeral. And I just saw her for the first time I ran into her on the street and I was just like, you know, like, what do you say? Yeah. So it's like, that's also a challenge as somebody who doesn't want to be the person who shies away. Then you go to somebody who's going through something. And what I said was like, I gave her a hug and I said, I've been thinking about you. You've been on my mind. And she said, I know. And she's like, give my love to your family. It was very quick. Yeah. And then I, I put my hands like this, you know, the, the pressed hands together, like in prayer. I don't do that. <laughs> I'm not the guy who does that, but I, and I like, like sort of namaste I, on I, the I, street. I did a namaste <laughs> like reflexively, you know, like not uh, habitually. I never do that. And I, then afterwards I was like, why did I just namaste her? Like, mm. did she think I'm lame? And I started like, <laughs> But it was just like, I just felt so much emotion. I was like, yeah, I just wanted to like visually signal to her, like something, you know, yeah. I don't know how else to do it. Like what, I don't know what else I was going to do. The sign of the cross or yeah, uh, shadow puppet, <laughs> you know, like, but that's what I did. And I hope it was okay. And I think that when you are in the presence of somebody who's grieving, like my mom, uh, told me, cause I had a friend who lost a parent and a brother when I was growing up, I had like a double loss, like tragically both. And, uh, but they were not at the same time. They were staggered by like four or five years. And I'll never forget my mom saying to me, well, in conversation, cause I was like, I don't know what to do mm-hmm. for Timmy. Like, I was like, what do I do? And she was like something. Mm-hmm. And I've never, I was like, yeah, like, I think sometimes people err on the side. Well, I don't know what to say or do. So I'm just going to say nothing so that I don't fuck anything up. Yeah. And I think it's hard for the person who's grieving. And maybe you can speak to this like in the year or two or three or whatever, where you were writing this book and going through your grieving process. Did you ever find yourself thinking like, God, I wish somebody would fucking call me and like, like ask how I'm doing. Or did did you feel like there was too much of that? (laughs) You know, like sometimes I wonder if like, for example, my friend who just lost her husband is sitting at home like lonely Mm -hmm. and is going like, wow, people are not coming to rally around me the wish, the way that I wish that they were. Or is she thinking like, guys, I just need space. Mm -hmm. It's hard to know, you know? And I guess you can ask her, right? Like, yeah, I think that's, that's the thing is that people are afraid of what to say or do. And so sometimes like they just don't ask you, you know, and, and I guess you don't want to put it on the other person too much. Like, what do you need right now or whatever? But it's like, um, do I just show up with food? And then it's like, but they, they probably have food. They're just like, then she won't have any room in the fridge and it just gets annoying. <laughs> I don't know. I think that like <laughs> gestures are nice. Gestures are nice. And no one brings on. I mean, actually that is really lovely. Like people don't really bring food to each other. I think unless, unless you live in like a very kind of traditional, you know, Midwestern, not Midwestern, but just like folksy, folksy kind of like, you know, neighborhoody vibe. There's like a hot dish. Yeah. That's not really happening, but like, it is just a nice gesture. I think those gestures matter. Even if like you don't eat the food. Yeah. You don't like hot dish. Yeah, you're like, fuck I'm going to, I'm going to quietly dump this in the garbage can, but I'm, I'm like touched that they brought it by. Like, I think people need to feel that you care Yeah. and like see that you care. And, uh, I don't know. It's just trying to navigate that. It's like, I think more dialogue is always better just so that people, like you say, why not just ask? Yeah. Just ask. And what would make me mad? And, and I had a friend whose mother died like very shortly after my mother died. 
and I loved um, her telling me all the things that made her mad. Like, it would make her so mad if someone was like, I know your mother would have been so proud of you or like anything like that. She's like, shut up. Like, shut the fuck up. Yeah, shut the fuck up. I know what my mom would feel about me. I don't need you telling me this. But my heart also breaks for the person saying that because they're just, they want to help. I know. They want you to feel right. And then like, what is it doing? It's making the person be like, shut the fuck up. Yeah. I don't want to do that. I don't want to create that moment. (laughs) Well, then I had this other friend who's dad died and and we were all kind of joking we're like welcome to the club you know the dead parents club (laughs) um but his dad died and he was like you know someone was like i i dedicated my yoga practice today to your dad he was like fuck you like my dad would not have wanted your yoga practice but he eventually said all he wanted people to say was i love you like i love you and this coming from a guy who I don't think of as being like exceptionally touchy feely or anything. Right. Um, and I guess, you know, there are ways to calibrate. I love you depending what the, I love you, man. Yeah. Love you, bro. <laughs> backslap hug. Yeah. Just I'll... a backslap hug. We don't need to go both arms. <laughs> Let's not get carried away. Yeah. And I'm thinking about you as a version of, I love you, you know? Yeah. Like, and I, like I emailed, I like got, I was like a little tipsy on Christmas Eve, (laughs) not bad, but I was just like, you know, I'm always like a little like emotional at the holidays anyway, Mm -hmm. in the way that most people are, I think, but just like heightened emotions two maybe three glasses of wine. And I was like, Oh shit. Like I hadn't reached out. So I wrote this email to this woman who's uh, been widowed and it was just like, Hey, I just want, you know, I thought I've been thinking of you guys every single day since I saw you. And, um, her name has like, I'm not going to say her name, but it's one of these names. It can be spelled like multiple different ways. I fucking misspelled it. <laughs> so I sent the email and then realized when I looked at her email address, I was like, oh my God, I just misspelled my friend's name in an email. And like, then I emailed the second time to be like, hey, I'm sorry. And I was like, am I a layer? And then I sent that and then I was like, oh my God. I just you la- followed up? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> sorry about the misspell. <laughs> it's, it's Still Christmas thinking Eve. about I you. I had an extra glass of wine. <laughs> I probably shouldn't even be, you know, it's just like the neurotic thing. So I didn't get any response though. Yeah. And I I don't expect one, you know, what are you going to do? Sit there and like respond to every email you get saying like, Hey, thinking of you. But, um, I guess I'm just like going back to what my mom always told me. It's like air on the side of doing something, Mm -hmm. even if you piss them off or fuck it up. I think it's better than doing nothing. Yeah. Right. I don't know. And I'm a hypocrite because I'm in this situation right now where someone, a friend of mine's parent just died and. I'm not that close to him, but I want to do something, but I don't know what to do. And I'm not close enough to him to say, I love you, you know, but it's <laughs> like, so I kind of err on the, I'm thinking about you guys. Yeah. You I know? think handwritten notes are good. There's something, I think, I don't know. There's something about getting a letter in the mail that's been written by a human hand. Yeah. That is nice. It's like, oh, like somebody took the time. It's better than an email. Oh, way better. You know, and uh, I, I tend to. That's that. Well, that tends to be my mode if I'm doing something like that. Is I try to write by hand. Do you have personalized stationery? No, I have this. It's like right up here. It's just blank, mm-hmm. but it's stationery. It doesn't have my name on it. Mm-hmm. You know. I just wondered if you know a mono. You were a monogram type. I know. I'm just blank. <laughs> it's like blank, cream colored card. Mm-hmm. Um. 
but yeah, like after my buddy, uh, my buddy died, like my, one of my best friends, like a few years ago and I would, I would write a le- like a letter to his parents every month. Wow. Just cause I was just like, oh, these poor fucking people. You yeah. Know? And I just, I guess I hate the idea of somebody just feeling lonely in mm-hmm. that, you know, it's the least I can do. I think they appreciated it too. I'm sure. Yeah. Something happened really, uh, a woman I went to graduate school with who I, she would call me her big sister. Like she was younger, very sweet. Um, and we weren't like very close, but we were in workshops together. She died recently in the, in the fall, just a few months ago. And how'd she die? She had Crohn's disease and then it was like a complication in the hospital. And, um, so really sudden and, her dad, <laughs> I don't really don't want to cry, but her dad was like, um, you know, she pre-ordered your book the minute it was available. So like, it'll arrive any day now. And like, that just kind of killed me because that's just the kind of person she was just so supportive and so excited. Sympathetic about... joy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which isn't always, I, you know, I think the other day I was talking about it. I said, empathetic joy is the wrong usage, but like sympathetic joy, is something like I am a fan of and like want to have more. Like, it's one of my favorite experiences. Yeah. Like when you're happy for somebody. So it's and, the best because like you don't have any of the complicated feelings about the happiness that they surely do. So you just get to be like, yes, it's the best, you know? Right. Um, yeah, a total sympathetic joy person. And it also made me feel like an asshole cause she's dead, right. you know? Right. And, and I think about her parents. I mean, I guess that's one thing I want to say is like, we've talked about so many dead people in the last however long. And, um, you know, I experienced like the most sort of natural death in some ways, like a child is a child witnesses their parents' death a lot, yeah. you know, more yeah, often yeah, yeah. than not. Sure. What seems harder for me to imagine in some ways is losing a child. Oh my God. Losing yeah. a spouse. Yeah. Um, someone told me the other day they had to take her sister off life support. Like all of these things I think are actually like I, I, and I said to her, I, I can't even imagine that. And she said, I think you can. And I was like, well, I don't know. I, it's different. And, um, and I think the loss of probably a spouse or a child is just our best friend, you know, like that hasn't happened to me yet. And it's, it's different. I don't, you know, it's the same, but different. Uh, I think that, you know, losing someone, out of time, like you say, in the natural course of, of right. things, like from a nature perspective, right. child mourns the loss of parent is a much more natural way of going about it than parent mourns the loss of child. Like yeah. that's just, you know, that to me is, is the one that, uh, that you want to try to avoid, Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's hard to even contemplate, but, uh, it happens, you know, and like I was saying earlier, and it's sort of like, for me anyway, it's it brings some comfort and I feel like it's healthy just to remember how inextricably linked life and life and death are and how they're happening at the same time. Um, you know, like the skin cells on your, on your body constantly like renewing themselves. You scratch yeah. your arm and like thousands of them fall to the ground, like invisibly dead. Mm-hmm. So like we're shedding, we're dying right now. <laughs> We've been dying. Everyone listening has been dying for the past 90 minutes. <laughs> 
but it's true. Like this is the thing is that it's true. It's scientifically true. It's not just like woo woo spiritual truth, right. but it's something that we forget. And, uh, you talk about impermanence. Um, you know, you can't have life without death. You can't, you got to have it. You it's know. just such a heartbreaker though. Like it makes, it does make me mad. Yeah. You know, it makes me mad. It's hard, but you know, like, like where are you in terms of, uh, like spiritual stuff in the afterlife? I mean, obviously going through a grief like this, you probably have entertained all sorts of ideas, but were you raised with anything that has stayed with you or did you come to any new understanding in the aftermath of your mother's death that has given you some sort of like comfort or steadiness? No, I don't, I don't think I... I don't believe in an afterlife. Um, I just think she's dead, you know, but I think like, what about reincarnation? Um, well, I don't know. I guess what I think is like compelling about reincarnation is, you know, just our energetic principles of things, energy not being created or destroyed and just reforming itself. But, I don't know. I don't know about reincarnation. Do you believe in reincarnation? I, th I tend to like, just like you say, it's a state change. Yeah. Like, like I'm, I'm into what's observably true. Right. If I'm going to like put a stake in the ground. And so I do think that in some way, uh, whatever it, like, cause I'm not my mind mm -hmm. and I'm not my body. These things are impermanent. And then there's like, you know, what is this animating life force in me, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, am I just this like meat, you know, of, of human, uh, physical body. Um, I also think of like the fact that I'm created from my parents and my parents were created from their parents and so on back through yeah. the millennia. So your mother is you, your father is you like demonstrably. Right. So she's still alive right now right. in you. And then, um, I think too, like of psychedelic experiences, um, where you sort of like, I don't know, just for a brief moment, I've, I've like touched and I feel like had access to some like oversoul <laughs> or like, or it touched me. Like, I don't know. Like there's some, I guess the only thing I can say with any kind of, um, clarity or definitiveness is just that there is much more than meets the eye mm -hmm. in terms of our reality. And so who's to say, mm -hmm. um, but I think that everything's deeply interconnected and I mean everything and everyone. And, um, at the very bottom of it all or the top of it all, <laughs> the very core of it all, I like to believe that it's very benevolent mm -hmm. and peaceful and mm -hmm. full of love, you know? And it, that's like what I think is like at the bottom of all of us, but it's just like lacquered over with all this bullshit. Yeah, I think those moments of remembering and forgetting, the remembering moments for me on some level are about accessing or it's not accessing, it's being made aware of some sort of unseen, energetic kind of principle or something. And often it's revealed, I think, through the beauty of the natural world. Um, but I think one of the biggest surprises for me was when I saw my mother's body and it was like, it just could not have been more, not her. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, and and I had never experienced that before. And I was just like, well, this, 
this isn't her. Mm-hmm. And so I, I agree with you. And I, and I think there's something about like an animating principle and we see it sometimes. And I think we don't see it much of the time, but it's always there, but it's always there. But, but I don't think it's like God. I think it's more like, I guess I think of it as like aliveness or something like the, well, I like, I run into this problem with kids where it's like my daughter who's eight. I mean, going way back, she was like, well, what, what is, is there God? Mm-hmm. We sent her to an Episcopal school for a little while. So it's like, <laughs> it's opening up all kinds of cans of worms, but you know, it's a, it's kind of a heavy responsibility. It's like, well, what do I say? Right. Uh, and what I just took to saying is like, I was like, honey, God is everything. Yeah. It's not some like, uh, you know, overhead projector. It's not some like judge in the sky. It's not some paternalistic, you know, critic or whatever. Yeah. It's just, it's all of this all of it, you, me, mm-hmm. you know? And so that that's like the safest answer I could come up with that also felt like it actually in sync with what I tend to believe. Cause you either think it's everything or it's nothing. Right. Right. You know? And I, I, I don't think that like monotheistic, um, anthropomorphized versions, um, of God or definitions of God are all that helpful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think ultimately they can be perverted and, uh, can just lead to a lot of psychological dysfunction. Yeah. Um, but I just, I guess maybe that's the optimist in me or, or somebody who wants to have a more hopeful view just as a sustaining principle. It's like, do you really want to just be like, you know, I'm an atheist. It's a fucking godless cold universe. <laughs> There's nothing to it. I mean, like that to me, that just discounts like to me it all, it feels like the, the flip side of a, um, really dogmatic religious view, mm-hmm. which is kind of the irony. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't want dogma. Right. I don't want identity in religion. I don't want to draw, derive my sense of identity. Like I'm a Catholic or I'm a Buddhist or I'm a, I don't want any of that. I want like a way of life that lends itself towards deeper understanding and like genuine peace and happiness. And if there are like things that I can do <laughs> great. Mm-hmm. And then I think I want to have uh, an open view of existence and the universe and all that is that uh, has some humility in it. Like, I don't fucking know. Yeah. This is weird. Exactly. And that is open to the possibility of, you know, a lot of different things. I want a sense of wonder. Yeah. You know, I always want there to be a sense of wonder and, and awe and there to be room for that. And it seems like dogma doesn't leave a lot of room for that. I asked my mom though, I I asked her at one point, like, do you believe in God? And she said, people are my church, which like is more specific than God's everywhere and God is everything. But she did kind of think the experiences of heaven and hell were earthly experiences. I believe so. Yeah. yeah. It's like psychological and emotional. You know what I'm saying? That's what I'm saying. Heaven and hell are like, we we've been, I'm sure like most people have been through both at different, you know, uh, intervals in life. Um, and we don't just, need an afterlife. No. It's like all <laughs> you're going to come. I think we're going to come back. That's what do what, you want to come back as? I'm sure I'd come back as a person. I you're mean, sure? No, I'm just saying like, I guess I'd oh, come back. Okay. I mean, maybe I'll come back as like an aardvark. I don't fucking know. Yeah. But I think like if you subscribe to that notion that this thing, this thing is circular and that, you know, there are just different turns of the wheel and it's been going on eternally. Yeah. Then we've all been just about everything. Sure. You know, infinitely back through, I mean, who knows back and forth. Um, or it could be, 
A big simulation. <laughs> <laughs> That's when, like, I start to get really confused when the simulation uh, talk starts. But, I mean, it's like I'm open to that possibility, you mm-hmm. know, that there's some, like, extraterrestrial, like, higher life force of, like, you know, vastly greater intelligence than us who's, like, somehow, who fucking knows? Who knows? I mean, it's like, you know, at some point it gets silly and it, unproductive <laughs> to start to go too deeply into this stuff just because it's so unknowable. Um but the kids thing, I think, is like a really interesting way to think about energy states and how they change. Because I remember being in the delivery room when my niece was born, and I thought she looked like my mother as soon as I looked in her face. Um, and over time, I don't really think that she's like my mom. I actually think that she and I are so alike. I just really relate to her in this deep deep way and but of course i'm of my mother and she's of my mother too so it's just like all this kind of like that's cool yeah that's really cool and that must be kind of the most mind-blowing trippy thing about being a parent and at the same time that they're so totally unique and immediately their own being that has nothing to do with you that's true too yeah you're like, wow, this is just like a mini me. And then they do something where you're like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're so weird. <laughs> well, it's so great to meet you. And uh, I love your book. Congratulations on, um, you know, working through all this stuff so beautifully. And uh, are you working on another book? Um, or it's like, you know, take a time out after this? I, I, I'm, Drink some I think water? I, yeah, I think I want to write. Yeah, I'm writing a novel, but you know, what, whatever. Like, <laughs> is, it, is it griefy or is it? No, no. Okay. it's not griefy. Um, it's lifey. Lifey. But, uh, I yeah, gotta I, try that. I, <laughs> you're doing it. Yeah. You're totally doing it. My I po- loved meeting po- you. My podcast is, uh, lifey. It totally. The, the book that I'm working on is griefy, but I gotta, I just gotta get it out of me. Yeah. Did you ever have that feeling? Um, yes. Like I gotta get this fucking thing done. Then I'll move on. Like I, I, you know, but if I don't get this done, I can't really do anything else. What, I mean, I know like we're done, but like what, <laughs> what, 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 how much needs, time do you have? What needs to happen? Like what's, um, I think like, I think like I just need to find a way to tell it that feels, um, I mean, it's, it sounds so silly. It just feels right. And, and puts down what I want to put down in a way that I can live with. that doesn't seem too treacly. Mm-hmm. or self-pitying you know it's like finding the right tone wanting there to be some humor maybe in there instead of just having it just be this heavy sort of like you know overbearing overbearingly bleak book i don't yeah. want i don't want that to be the case i want it to be like life affirming yeah and that's not always easy especially if you're dealing with heavy emotions and then i just think that in the composition of the book over the period of time that i've been doing it there are just a lot of there are a lot of different things that happened that sort of like caused it to reconstitute itself mm-hmm. and just knocked me off course. So it's sort of like feeling like, okay, can the punches just stop coming so I can take a mm-hmm. breath and do this thing? Cause it wasn't just like one thing. Have yeah. you given it to anyone yet? Yeah. I mean, there have okay. been, there's been iterations that I've, I mean, I've written the book like multiple times, yeah. like to completion. And like, I even handed it to my agent at one point and like, we sort of like towed the waters, but people were like, it's just, it's, it's not right. It's too heavy. And I was like, mm. yeah, it is. So it's like wanting to get to that point where I feel like a sense of like happiness about it as opposed to like, here's my sad book. <laughs> right. Right. Cause so, you're so funny in real life too. I've had people be like, why don't you just write a funny book? 
And I'm like, I want to. Right. But can I write a funny, griefy book? <laughs> yes, I think is probably the answer. But also, like, isn't this why we get to be writers is so we can express something in writing that we don't always express in daily life? Like, I'm pretty, you know, light, jokey, whatever. Yeah. yeah. But it, it feels nice to be able to dip into something really different. So maybe you needed to write the really depressing thing. And now you're just going to like sprinkle some jokes in. Just gotta, yeah. Just got to work in some jokes, like one per chapter. Or two. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been great to talk uh, about all of this stuff. Thank and, you. Uh, I wish you well on the next thing. Thank you so much. This was really fun. All right. There she is, folks. That is Sarah McCall. Her memoir is called Joy Enough. It is available now from Live Right Press. You can find Sarah online at sarahmccall.com. That's McCall with an O, M-C-C-O-L-L. She's on Twitter. She's on Instagram. Sarah McCall, Joy Enough. Go get your copy now. Thank you to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget, this podcast has its own app. The Other People with Brad Listy app is free. Go get it. It's free. It's a good way to listen. Next week on the program, who do I have? I believe I have Sam Lipsight. I'm not 100% sure on scheduling because uh, I might do a Sunday episode. I might, because I'm dangerous. (laughs) 